Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Right, uh, as Matt said, I'm going to get on with our teaching series. I've renamed it. I've called it Out on Thin Ice. (laughs) Actually, it's called What's That About? And we are taking some things that are, people, when they talk about the end of the age, these concepts that I'm going to mention always come up in some kind of form or other. And uh, I just thought it would be maybe helpful if we took a little bit of time and kind of looked at them and saw um, perhaps what the Bible says about them. Uh, Over the last two weeks, I've looked at Daniel's 70 weeks. And I started with that incredibly difficult concept because... One's interpretation of Daniel's 70-week prophecy affects everything downstream. Whatever it is that you believe about the end of the age downstream can almost invariably be traced directly or indirectly to to Daniel's 70 weeks. I, I mentioned that a very pervasive and popular approach to the end of the age, as is expounded in books like the Left Behind series, The Late Great Planet Earth, and any other you know, books on prophecy, a lot of them, uh, teach that God really has two major focuses in terms of his purposes for the peoples of the earth. The first is natural uh, Israel, Abraham's physical seed. Physical national Israel is the focus, apparently, of God's dealings through the Old Testament, coming right up to Messiah, which in Daniel's terminology is the 69th week. At the end of that 69th week, according to this teaching, uh, God offers the kingdom in the person of Jesus to the physical seed of Abraham, Israel. They refused it, and as a result of that, God's prophetic clock apparently stops ticking, and God turns his attention to his second focus, a spiritual people, the church, made up not exclusively but very largely of Gentiles. As this teaching goes, when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, when that season is over, God will remove that spiritual people from the earth by, uh, by secret rapture and then will turn his focus and purpose back to national Israel. Now, I suggested as strongly as I could, and if you were here last week, you'll know much too strongly, that that is not the only way to understand God's end-time purposes. Now, clearly for many end-time scenarios, natural Israel and its people, its land, play a titanic role. Many of you, like me, were raised believing that national Israel would probably play the leading focal role of the end of the age as it winds up. What I'd like to do is to take a couple of messages this week and, God willing, next week to examine Israel's identity and their possible role at the end of the age. Now, some of you might be quite new in the faith, and you, you don't get all this Israel stuff. Why are they so important? What's, what's the big deal about them anyway? Well, let me give you a very brief thumbnail sketch of God's narrative, of God's drama, and where Israel fits into it. We know from the book of Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth, and he placed mankind in the garden as his vice-regents with instructions to tend and develop it. 
Instead of functioning as his co-regents, they heeded the seductions of an adversary and they decided they would go out on their own. We call that the fall and it had a catastrophic impact on both mankind and on creation. The early chapters of Genesis show it's a rapid downhill slide from there on and by Genesis chapter 6, total depravity seems to have taken hold of mankind. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, it says, When the Lord saw the extent of human wickedness and that the trend and direction of men's lives were only toward evil, he was sorry that he'd made them. It broke his heart. We know that God flooded the earth and started afresh with Noah and his family, giving to Noah almost the identical instructions that were given to Adam and Eve. But Noah's family didn't fare any better than their first parents, and by the time we come to Genesis 11, the earth and its people are once again in an unholy mess, resulting in them being scattered at the Tower of Babel. However, God refused to abandon his creation, and he launched a rescue plan. He called a man and his family, Abraham, and it starts in Genesis chapter 12, and he gives them almost exactly the same instructions as he gave Adam and Eve and then Noah. Bishop N.T. Wright says, the reason that the creator God called Abraham in the first place was to undo the sin of Adam and its effects. So the call of Abraham was not a rejection of all other people. Abraham and his seed, his family, that were later to be called Israel, were God's means by which he intended to rescue the whole, the whole of the people and the whole of the cosmos. And he said to them, you will be blessed in order to be a blessing. Now, I know I've used this illustration before, but it's the best I can think of. When I was a school teacher, at the end of term, last day of term, I would pick a child out of the class and I would get them to come up. I would give them X amount of money and I'd say, I want you to go down to the dairy and buy however many ice blocks, you know, however many kids there were. And they would go off and they would come back with a big box of ice blocks, which then they had the privilege of distributing to all of the kids. Now, in a real sense, though it was a privilege for that child to be trusted in that way, they were a means to an end. I intended that what they would do would be a blessing to the whole of the class. Now, Israel and uh, the whole family of Israel failed as Adam and Noah had before them. And of course, rather than being a blessing to the whole world, they nationalized God and excluded all the others. In Isaiah, and sorry, Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Israel is a luxurious vine bringing forth fruit for himself. They were like the kid who got the box of ice blocks. Instead of bringing it back to the class, they went behind the bike shed and ate the whole lot. That's exactly what Israel did. Adam was given a garden to look after, disobeyed, and was expelled from it. Israel was given a land to, to look after, disobeyed, and was expelled from it. If God was ever going to be able to fulfill his promise to Abraham and bless the world through his seed, he was going to have to find a faithful Israelite through whom he could do that. And he found such a one in his own beloved son, Jesus of Nazareth. As a physical descendant of Abraham, Jesus came and took upon himself Israel's true identity and true mission. When you find in the Gospel of John, Jesus saying things like, 
I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. They aren't just nice, pithy statements. They are significant statements. When Jesus said, I am the true vine, the Israelites that are listening to him completely understand that through the Old Testament, particularly in passages, say, for example, like Isaiah 5 or Psalm 80, that Israel were the vine. In Psalm 5, and sorry, in Isaiah 5, God paints a picture of planting this vine, saying it's the nation of Israel looking for fruit and not being able to find it. So you have to hear Jesus' statement, I am the true vine in the light of Israel being a false one. And what Jesus is doing there is taking on Israel's identity. When he says, I am the light of the world, he is taking on Israel's mission. And you have to hear that in the light of Isaiah 42, verse 6, which is a servant song talking about the coming Messiah. And it says, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the peoples, as a light to the Gentiles. That was Israel's mission. That was Israel's identity. They failed, and Jesus comes as the true Israelite, taking on Israel's identity and mission. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Messiah Jesus, God has his rescue plan and is able to fulfill the promises made to Abraham. They, they start becoming a reality that the whole of the world will be blessed and that, will God, and that God will get a family of Jew plus Gentile, a worldwide family from the person of Abraham. That's the thumbnail sketch. Question, where does now ethnic national Israel fit into God's story? Well, any study of biblical Israel, its land and its people and its future, has to grapple with and come to terms with the four great symbols of Jewish identity. And those four great symbols of Jewish identity are racial identity, the temple, Torah, and their land. So racial identity, temple, Torah, territory. And what I plan to do is briefly introduce those, deal with two this week, and then look at the other two next week. So let's quickly look at them. And what I plan to do is take those four great symbols of Judaism and of Jewish identity and take them through the lens of Jesus of Nazareth, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. You have to remember that Jesus came. If you can imagine a great funnel coming down to a point, that point is the climax of the covenant, and it is the person of Jesus. And you can't take anything from that story without taking it through the person of Jesus Christ. You can't just take things from Old Testament into New Testament without passing them through the pinnacle and, and climax of the covenantal story. All of the concepts, the racial concept, the, the temple, the Torah, the territory, must be passed through the focus of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken. All of the Old Testament promises are fulfilled in the person of Christ. They become yes and amen in and through him. So those four concepts cannot simply be taken from Old Testament through into the New Testament in any end-of-the-age scenario without passing them through the Christ event. 
So racial identity. Well, God had promised and purposed, for, uh, he had purposes for Abraham and his family. So vital were those purposes that they had to maintain their racial identity and their purity of worship to Yahweh. So the Old Testament story is largely centered around how well they did that. You'll, you'll know that intermarriage was prohibited. They had to stay together and refuse to compromise with their pagan neighbors. The covenantal sign of circumcision was a boundary marker that separated them out as God's chosen people to maintain that racial identity. Then there's temple. Well, the temple is the focus point of every part of Jew Jewish national life. If you look at a a map of the ancient city of Jerusalem, it, the temple, the significance of the temple stands out immediately. It occupies about a quarter, 25% of the whole of the city. Jerusalem is not so much a city with a temple, rather in those days it was a temple with a small city round about it. The temple was the divine dwelling place, the place from whence divine presence was mediated. It was the place where heaven and earth met. If you like, it was like a cosmic crossroad where eternal met temporal, where natural met supernatural. It was here that atonement was made, forgiveness was received, and worship was offered. Torah, the law, was the covenant charter of Israel. Torah and temple formed an indissoluble bond. Torah sanctioned and regulated what happened in the temple, and the temple was the practical focal point for the observance and outworking of Torah. The Jews of the diaspora scattered around the world, for them the study and practice of Torah increasingly became the focal point of their Jewishness. Separated from temple and land, what they had was Torah. And so for million, millions of Jews in the diaspora, the temple was portable land and movable temple. Then this territorial land. The Jews believed that Yahweh had given them the land inalienable. Inalienably, it, it, incapable of being surrendered. It was theirs by divine right and by divine promise. So Jerusalem and the temple was the obvious focal point of the land, but the holiness spread out in concentric circles from the holy of holies in the temple, right throughout the whole land. So those are the four great symbols of Jewish identity. As I say, Jesus came as God's true and faithful Israelite in whom God intended to bless the whole world. And my belief is that the Bible teaches that Jesus drew together those four great symbols of Jewish identity and mission to himself and then redefined and expanded them to take in the whole world. So again, if you can manage, imagine the fun that comes down to a focal point in Jesus, and then from there goes out, uh, expanded and redefined. So that's where I'm going. Let me start with racial identity. The New Testament introduces us to the fact that in and through Messiah Jesus, Israel has been totally redefined. The New Testament teaches us that because of Jesus, Abraham's seed is now defined not along physical lines of descent and birth, but lines of faith. It has been redefined along the lines of grace, not along the lines of race. Actually, Paul makes the case in several of his epistles, especially Romans and, and, and Galatians a little bit also, that that actually had always been the case that God's people had always 
been about faith rather than simply physical descent. That's why God chose Isaac but rejected Ishmael, chose Jacob but rejected Esau. And Paul makes the point that the promised seed had always run along faith lines. But when we come to the New Testament, there is a breathtaking redefinition of what it means to be Jewish, of what it means to be a member of Abraham's family. Romans chapter 2, verse 25 through 29 reads, Circumcision, the, circle, the, the surgical ritual that marks you as a Jew, is great if you live in accord with God's law. But if you don't, it's worse than not being circumcised. The reverse is also true. The uncircumcised who keep God's ways are as good as the circumcised. In fact, better. Better to keep God's law uncircumcised than break it circumcised. Now listen to this. Don't you see? It is not the cut of a knife that makes a Jew. You become a Jew by who you are. It's the mark of God on your heart, not of a knife on your skin that makes a Jew. What Paul is doing is redefining Jewishness and true circumcision. The covenant sign that marked off physical national Israel is now no longer an outward physical reality, but Paul says it's an inward spiritual one. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. It's, it's about new creation. New creation by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's that new creation that establishes a person as a member of God's family and of Abraham's seed. This is a breathtaking redefinition of who Israel is. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And in verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now this is devastatingly, compellingly clear. Membership of Abraham's family, of Abraham's seed, of God's family, is determined by faith in the Messiah, by being in Christ. It is not about physical descent. Let me go further. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For it isn't the cutting of our bodies that makes us children of God. It is worshiping him with our spirits. That is the only true circumcision. So Israel has been redefined in and through Messiah Jesus. Again, Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is new creation. And then he says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. He's talking to the church. And he says, you are the Israel of God. Israel has been dramatically redefined through the lens, through the Christ event. The death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ has taken that mark of Jewish identity and redefined it. Now, some of you might be thinking, Don, I've heard all this before. This is replacement theology. Christianity is not a new religion. It is not a replacement of Judaism. It's not an alien importation into Judaism. It is, in fact, the true development and fulfillment of it. This is not replacement of, but rather fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham. The promise to Abraham is that he would have a worldwide family. 
that he would bless the world. And what this does is it takes that promise to Abraham and it fulfills it in and through Christ and then extend it, extends it. And you and I as Gentiles have been taken and narrated into Israel's story. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul deals with this issue, and in Romans 11, he's, large, he's writing to a largely Gentile church. Now, the Jewish population of Rome, as, as Paul is writing, had recently been expelled by the Roman Empire, Emperor, and they'd been absent from the city for probably about seven or eight years. The expulsion order had just been lifted, and the Jewish population were now drifting back into Rome. In their absence, the Gentile Christians had dominated the church, and it seems that they were really struggling now with the returning Jewish Christians who were expecting to play a significant role as they had previously. And so Paul is writing to the Gentile Christians and saying, hey, listen, don't you be arrogant concerning these people. Don't you be unwelcoming of these Jewish believers as they come back into your community. And he uses this amazing example in verse 17 of chapter 11. Some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the Jews have been broken off. And you Gentiles who were branches from, we might say, a wild olive tree were grafted in. So now you too receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in God's rich nourishment of his own special olive tree. But you must be careful not to brag about being put in to replace the branches that were broken off. Remember that you are important only because you are now part of God's tree. You are just a branch, not the root. Well, you may be saying, those branches were broken off to make room for me, so I must be pretty good. Watch out. Remember that those branches, the Jews, were broken off because they didn't believe God. And you are there only because you do. Do not be proud, be humble and grateful and careful. For if God did not spare the branches he put there in the first place, he won't spare you either. We Gentiles have been engrafted into Israel's story, into the olive tree. And I want to say there's only one olive tree, not two. There's only one people, not two. It is belief and not genetics that makes you part of that tree. That tree, in a sense, has been redefined along the lines of grace, not of race, and we are grafted into that tree and that story when we believe. The unbelieving Jews that Paul says have been cut off, now they have clearly, obviously, not been cut off from the Jewish people as an ethnic entity, they remain, of course, ethnically Jewish, but they have been broken off from Abraham's redefined family considered along the lines of faith. This might be a shock to you, but I want to tell you, in my opinion, the cross has brought to an end any suggestion of Jewish national privilege outside of faith. There is no covenant membership for national fleshly Israel on the basis of racial identity or ancestral privilege. I can't make it any clearer than saying I believe the New Testament teaches with devastating clarity that God has one Israel family, not two, and that the church is the Israel of God, according to Galatians chapter 6. There is one olive tree, there's one family, there's one purpose, and membership of that family and purpose is on the basis of faith by grace. These scenarios that teach that God has two peoples and two purposes, I, 
if you can read Ephesians chapter 2 and still come up with the idea that God has two families and two purposes, I don't know what to say to you. Let me just quote one verse from an extended passage that I encourage you to read. It's verse 14. Christ himself is our way of peace. He has made peace between us Jews and you Gentiles by making us all one family, breaking down the wall of contempt that separated us. That whole chapter is about how God has brought Jews and Gentiles together in one family for one story, one people. You know, sometimes people say to me, Don, do you believe in God? The appropriate answer to that question is, what God are you talking about? There are lots of gods out there. Which one are you asking whether I believe in? When people ask me, do you believe that God has a plan for Israel at the end of the age? The appropriate question is, which Israel are you talking about? End time teachers often make much of the fact that God has an end time plan for national Israel, Israel after the flesh. And in some evangelical circles, this has reached a place and a point that I think if the Apostle Paul could see it, he would be shocked to the core. According to some of these teachers, not only are there two peoples, there are two covenants and two ways of salvation. It is claimed that the Jewish people have their own viable way to God apart from Christ. And Christians of this persuasion reject the idea of even evangelizing the Jewish people. Now you could say to me, Don, that sounds unbelievably extreme. Well, the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem claims to represent a wide section of evangelical churches. It has branches all over the world, including New Zealand. And it takes the position of refusing to evangelize Jewish people. Apparently, they don't need it. They have their own separate covenant with God. Pope Francis recently said, Jewish people continue to be God's chosen people and that their religion remains for them a source of divine grace. The General Assembly of the Church of Scotland recently declared their belief in the continuing place of God's people Israel within the divine purpose. Jews cannot be treated by Christians as unbelievers, but only as brother believers with whom they are privileged to share a common faith in God and the same promises of salvation. I don't know what Bible people are reading. If that's true then Christ was simply a way of bringing Gentiles into the covenant alongside Jews. That's all it was. And I want to say in the strongest terms possible that Christ not only is a, he is not a, simply an alternative way to God for Gentile peoples. He is the non-negotiable central self-expression of God and there's no salvation outside of him. This idea of two covenants, two ways of teaching is a stunning reversal of New Testament teaching. Paul did not believe that. In Romans chapter 10, he says, For the scriptures tell us that no one who believes in Christ will ever be disappointed. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They all have the same Lord who generously gives his riches to all those who ask him for them. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew and Gentile come together. Romans is all about that. Jew and Gentile both sinners, Jew and Gentile, both come to Christ. They have to face the Christ event where they become redefined and then expanded and sent out into the world. Peter didn't believe that idea of two covenants. He said, there is salvation in no one else. Under all heaven, there's no other name for men to call on to be saved. There's not another way. As exclusive and as difficult as that sounds to the postmodern mind, that's the Bible teaching. Jesus didn't believe that there was two ways. 
In John chapter 14, he said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father by me. And I don't know how to say this other than God has one family and there's one way to enter it and it's through him and it's by faith. And when you come to him by faith, we Gentiles are engrafted into the Israeli story. The Israel story is our story. Their forefathers are our forefathers. And that family is redefined, not along lines of race and nationality, but along, along the lines of grace and faith. So you say to me, Don, well, do you think God has an end time perfect purpose for national, ethnic Israel. And I would want to say, yes, I think he does. He hasn't rejected his ancient people, but that plan is about them coming to faith in the same way that we all come to faith. His plan for national, ethnic Israel is that they are regrafted back into the olive tree and that they become part of Abraham's worldwide family of faith. It happens the same way you and I get in, by faith. And in Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul talks about his hope that this will happen. That passage, by the way, is complicated, and there are various interpretations of what Paul is actually hoping for. Some people reading it think that what Paul is saying is that I think there will be an end-time revival among ethnic Jewish people, that there'll be a flood of Jewish people into the church. Others are saying, and, and credible voices along the lines of N.T. Wright, they're saying, oh, we can hope for that, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying that there will always be this remnant of Jewish people that are part of this family, and Paul is an example of that. And I don't mind which you take. I mean, let's hope for both. But that's God's end time plan for Israel. As Gentiles and grafted into Israel's story, I believe that he would have us to be humble and grateful toward Jewish people. Not anti-Semitic, not arrogant, not dismissive of them. We owe them a great debt. Our Messiah is Jewish. Our Bible is 99% Jewish. But gratitude, in my view, is not the same as obsession. And it seems when people, particularly in evangelical circles, talk about Israel, it often goes overbalanced as far as I'm concerned. And they, they take Old Testament ideas and take them into the New Testament without taking them through the person of Christ and the Christ event, which redefines those things. Let me quickly talk about temple. If you think I'm not going to take anywhere near as long on this one, okay? So breathe easy. Temple, one of the massive symbols of Jewish identity. As I said before, the temple was where heaven and earth intersected. It was the cosmic crossroad where the, temple, the eternal and the temporal met, where the natural and the supernatural met. It was there that atonement was made, forgiveness was received, worship was offered. But like racial identity, the temple must be taken to Jesus for redefinition and expansion. You can't simply take the temple from... Old Testament into New Testament, end of the age, without taking it through the Christ event. And in John chapter 2, Jesus is faced with the temple and, and the disciples are saying, isn't it magnificent? And you know the story. He said, nah, it's not so great. Destroy the temple and I'll raise it again in three days. 
They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. In effect, what Jesus is saying there and in other places through the New Testament is, what the physical temple was, I am. It's an incredible statement. Audacious blasphemous if it came from the lips of any other person. But he said, "What I am the cosmic crossroads where atonement will be made, where forgiveness will be ministered, where worship will be offered. And throughout his ministry, you see that. Your sins are forgiven. And the, the Pharisees are flummoxed and apoplectic. You can't do that. Only God can do that. It's almost like Jesus says, join the dots. Join the dots. Worship. People came, fell at his feet in worship. You never find Jesus saying, oh, please don't do that. You know, in the end of Revelation where John is so overcome by an angel, he falls at the feet of the angel to worship the angel. Oh, no, 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 don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. Jesus never does that. He receives the worship. He ministers forgiveness. And of course, in his cross, he dealt with the issue of atonement. He's the place where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. The word was made flesh and, the, and, 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 and he tabernacled among us. He templed among us and we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth, John says. He, he is the temple, filled with the glory of God. That's why Colossians says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He's the Shekinah glory of God. The book of Hebrews outlines how Jesus is different from all other temples. In all other temples, people come, bring their sacrifices, give it to the priest who takes it to the altar and sacrifices it on their behalf. In the person of Jesus, we have the temple, the altar, the sacrifice, and the priest. He is all of those things in one. He is the one in whom the divine presence resides and from whom it is then ministered. He forgives sin, receives worship. Sacred space has been redefined in Jesus. It's been brought to the pinnacle of the Christ event and then redefined and expanded because he now says to you and me through Paul, and you, my body, are the temple of God. When people say, Don, do you think God has a plan for an end time temple? The appropriate answer is, which temple are you talking about? For one, undoubtedly yes. For the other, if the New Testament in general and the book of Hebrews in particular is to believe, not so much. As these two great symbols of Jewish identity are passed through Jesus, the climax of the Jewish story and covenant, they are breathtakingly redefined and expanded. The racial family of Abraham becomes a worldwide family of faith made up of Jew and Gentiles, redefined along the lines of grace. In Jesus, sacred space has been redefined and the focus has moved from a physical temple in Jerusalem to a spiritual worldwide temple, which is Jesus and his body. I've renamed this series Out on Thin Ice and next week it gets even thinner. Because we have to deal with Torah and land. And I want to suggest to you, you think about it, but both those two things, as, the, as racial identity and as temple, come to the Christ event and are redefined and expanded, Torah and territory. 
come to the Christ event and are redefined and expanded. You cannot, in my view, simply take Old Testament ideas, whether it's land, temple, or whatever, and bring it into the New Testament with all its promises and deposit it anywhere you like, but particularly at the end of the age, without taking it through the climax of the story. In him, all the promises of God, everything that was said to Abraham, to Moses, to David, in him, the promises of God are yes and amen. You can't just take them and put them over there. They have to be passed through that lens. And when you pass through that lens, they are breathtakingly redefined and expanded. So Don, please, could you just give me a one-word answer? Do you believe God has an end-time plan for national Israel? Which Israel are you talking about? <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.